Father, we are thankful and we give back to you our tithes and our offerings in this act of worship to show you how grateful we are. Lord, nothing we could do or say or think could ever repay you. That's not what this is about. We give to you as cheerful givers with glad hearts because we know every good gift comes from your hand. So when our hearts aren't glad, make them glad. When we're not cheerful, give us cheer and cause us to see that all goodness flows from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 25. And we're picking back up at verse 15 this morning for the continuation of what we began uh, last week. The message continues. And so we're going to look at the, the, the rest of this part of the message in Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, beginning in verse 15, this is God's word. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as of this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, all the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dedan, Tema, Buzz, all who cut the corners of their hair, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of Medea, all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth, and after them the king of Babylon shall drink. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more, because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name, and shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished. For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. You therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. And those pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be dung on the surface of the ground. 
Wail, you shepherds, and cry out, and roll in ashes, you lords of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come, and you shall fall like a choice vessel. No refuge will remain for the shepherds, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of the shepherds, and the wail of the lords of the flock, for the Lord is laying waste their pasture, and the peaceful folds are devastated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, he has left his lair, for their land has become a waste because of the sword of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you help us as we now hear your word? Would you help us understand? Would you help our hearts receive? Would you cause it to do its work in us? Only you can do this, Lord. So we look to you in faith now for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So as I mentioned, the message is a continuation of the message that we began last week. The message Jeremiah brings to Judah now extends to the nations. That Jeremiah wasn't just a prophet to Judah. We learned that in the very first chapter. He was also a prophet sent to the nations. And so now we see that not only is Judah going to be carried off as captives to be in exile in Babylon, now the other nations will also receive judgment. In Peter's first epistle, he writes in chapter 4, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And there's a sense in this verse that Peter writes that God starts with his people First, that's what it's expressing. It's the same sentiment that we read when we, when we see that the gospel is for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. That there is a sense of God's unfolding plan of redemption uh, where he started with Abraham. He took one man and formed from him a nation of people. He made a people for himself. Gentiles have now been grafted in. And so the body of Christ today is made up of all people throughout time who have been saved by grace. And there's a sense that we, it's not a duty uh, in, in the sense of us owing anything, but responsibility may be a good word uh, to that grace. If you think of Paul's question, what shall we say then? Are we to, to continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6.1, by no means, right? We are not saved to go on living as we please. We are saved, we have been set aside, we've been saved for good living or good works. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so there's a sense that God comes to deal with his people first. Judgment would begin there. But that wasn't to mean for the other nations that may be hearing this message or observing this message, eh, we're okay. We're not going to face judgment. No, God says, I'm going to deal with all of you. So in this section, he begins to trace that judgment throughout the, the region of the known world. This would have been, in the reader's mind, this would have been the world. This is, this is what they knew. I think they were, there was probably a sense of awareness beyond this, but they certainly didn't understand all the peoples around the world like we do today. So the, the message that's being delivered, and it's clear if we, if we don't even get this from the, the geographical picture that's painted, we certainly get this from the language itself because he continually repeats all nations, all flesh, all the peoples of the world. This is a message for everyone everywhere that God is going to bring judgment. 
It's interesting, though, that he traces geographically, and you could follow on the map where, how, how the nations are grouped as he goes through this list, but the, he ends with Babylon. You remember in the previous passage that God had called Nebuchadnezzar my servant. Right? He had chosen to use Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument, and he calls him my servant to discipline or to correct or bring judgment on Judah. And so, as you know the story about Nebuchadnezzar, he was quite full of himself, God would indeed humiliate him. He would humble him. His power would be very short-lived uh, from, from any sta- uh, historical standpoint. And so we see in this, in this message God's sovereignty in judgment, that what we might look at in the history books and see one nation attacking another, we can look through the lens of Scripture and, and realize how God was using all of this to carry out and accomplish his purposes. And that can bring up a challenging question for us. If you haven't thought it before, you may think of it now that I'm going to put it in your head, and that is how can a sovereign God hold those whom he rules over accountable for their actions? How is that possible? Well, we don't have time to deal with this exhaustively, but let me say it very simply, that Scripture teaches both human responsibility, we are accountable for our actions, and a God who is sovereign. That is to say, we are not robots, We do make choices for which we are accountable, but God is not the author of sin, nor can he be blamed for it. He allows us to make our choices, but our choices never usurp his sovereignty. And so he is able to work even in spite of our great wickedness and accomplish all of his purposes. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of this in which God delivered up the Son to be crucified. That's what Peter says in his sermon at Pentecost. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Jesus is delivered up by the plan of God, and yet the people who killed him are called to account as sinful men. So... In a sense, this kind of melts our brains. I get that. Like, it's hard to, to really wrap our heads completely around us. We can hear explanations like this simplistic one I've just offered that we're not robots and, and God's not the author of sin, but it's still really hard to get our heads around. And yet the whole point of this, or I think the main point of this, is that we might be comforted. That we might be comforted. That nothing we can do can alter God's good plan for our lives. No, no great evil, no great sin, nothing you've done in the past, nothing you've done in the future is beyond His ability to redeem and to work out and to carry through for His purpose. There is great comfort in that. Not only can He redeem our sins and work through and overturn the wrong directions that we walk in, but he can also overturn and redeem and renew the worst wrongs committed against us. He alone can redeem the utter mess that this world is and that our lives can often become for our good. We may not have the ability to see this in this moment, but we are promised a future. And the hope of that future is that it will be a place and a time where he wipes away every tear. There will be no more mourning. The redemption that provides this is not just that our sins have been atoned for, but also that those who do not trust in Christ will also have to have their sins dealt with. In the end, there will be justice for all. And so the passage that's before us today 
not only speaks to this specific time that Jeremiah is speaking, that Babylon will be dealt with, but it is a shadow. It is a forecast of something that is coming later on down the road, that no far, far corner of the earth will escape. No one will be exempt. No one will go unnoticed. God will judge and give justice for all. Those who fall upon his mercy will find mercy in that he has taken upon himself their sins and paid the price. But for those who refuse him, they will have to deal with their sin on their own. There will be no one to take their sin upon them, and they will face the justice that is fair and just according to all that they have done. And so now beginning and looking in verse 15, we see Jeremiah received the instruction from God concerning a cup. And God tells him to take the cup. We know that the cup in Scripture is used to portray both blessing and judgment, or both blessing and curse. We see this, if you think of uh, Psalm 23, uh, the writer David speaks of the cup, his cup overflowing, picture of blessing. If we think of the Lord's table and the image of the cup that it represents, our atonement, it's certainly a picture of blessing. But I think Often when we think of the cup, particularly in the Old Testament, we think of the cup of wrath. That's how it's, it's often portrayed in Scripture. And so we see this in the Old Testament, but that's not the only place. We see it in the New Testament as well. If you remember our study of Revelation, we saw the cup of wrath there. And Jesus, on the night that he was to be crucified, prayed to the Father and said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not, not my will, but yours be done. That cup that he prayed would be removed was the just wrath of the Father for the sins of men. So in this passage, we don't have to try and figure out what the cup represents because it tells us it is the cup of the wine of wrath. That's what this cup represents. The question, though, that comes up is, is this cup literal? Did Jeremiah have a physical cup? Because we've seen that happen in Jeremiah. He had a few, he's had a few object lessons where he took literal objects and, and kind of uh, did things with them to, to instruct the people. Uh, and we see in verse 15, Make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Verse 17, Jeremiah states, So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. And so some have taken those verses to believe that Jeremiah had a physical cup and he went around and some, some say he traveled. He went to other nations and he presented this cup with this message and others suggest that maybe he went to like the ambassadors who would have been in Jerusalem from these various countries and had them drink it. I, I think that's a little far-fetched to imagine, although not impossible. It doesn't change the meaning in any way uh, of what, what, what's, what's being portrayed here, uh, but I, I think that there's, there's no question this is a vision, right? The, the Lord comes to Jeremiah in a vision. So this is at least in part a vision. I think the whole is a vision, and the cup actually represents the message that Jeremiah is to deliver. It doesn't change the, the meaning if you, if you think this is a literal cup, but I, I don't think that's actually what happened. I think the cup is the message of God's powerful judgment. The symbolism of God's powerful word is something that we see Paul describe about the gospel in 1 Corinthians. Now, the gospel means good news, and it is Certainly, good news. But the gospel contains also a message of judgment. The gospel says we have all sinned before a holy God. There is in that judgment. 
Well, you may have heard the gospel presented that way. There's bad news and there's good news, right? You have to start with the bad news where you have a problem. If people don't understand their sin, then they, they can't appreciate the grace of God and all that they have been saved from. So there is a message of judgment in the gospel that we have sinned before a holy God. And what makes it such good news is that God has caused our sin to fall upon the Son, Jesus, so that our sins have been removed from us. And we have only by faith to receive that gift of His grace. And what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians sounds too good to be true, and he kind of conveys that, that it's, 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 it's hard to believe because it sounds so good. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who, who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There's both sides to this, but I think, at least in my mind, I've always gone to the good news side being more of the stumbling stone and the folly, that, that, that both Greek and Jew would look at that and think, no, 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 for the Jew, you've got to do stuff, and for the Greek, this, this is just too easy kind of thing. But there's there's... There's more to this that can be a stumbling stone because the judgment can also be that which trips people up. Have you ever heard someone say, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm not pointing to anyone. I'm just pointing at I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Or you may have heard somebody say, you know, we're all basically good. I can't believe a loving God would send anyone to eternal judgment. You see, it's not just the good news that sounds too good to be true that trips people up. It's often the bad news, the judgment uh, that God will come to hold people to account for their sins. We don't want to believe it. We don't want to believe we're all that bad. We don't want to believe that we will be held to account. And we don't want to believe in judgment. We just we want to believe in this kind of, you know, um, it, it's all good, tolerance kind of idea. And that's, that's embedded in our culture. I think it's also embedded in our heart. I don't think it's anything new under the sun. I think every generation has dealt with this in some form. But we really don't want to believe our sins should be judged. And so the message Jeremiah was to bring was a message of God's judgment, not just on Judah, but upon all nations, that no one escapes, that there would be justice for all. And many in Jeremiah's day didn't want to believe it either. And we've seen that throughout our our study of the book, that, that people did not want to believe that God was going to judge them for their sins. But this was true not only in Judah, but it was also true among the nations. That's why they lived the way that they did. There was no accountability. They didn't see any need to, to submit to, to the God of creation. The judgment that was coming, it says in verse 16, would make them stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. It is a picture of people out of control, a sad picture. A picture of people unable to walk, a a picture of people unable to control their bodily functions. It is a picture of helplessness. And that symbolism is to describe just that. You will be utterly helpless in the coming judgment. And so the cup then is the message of judgment. And the judgment is going to come not just to Judah, but to all. However, the Lord does begin with his own people, verse 18. He starts there. That's the sentiment that we saw in, in, P, in 1 Peter 4.17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. There's one other principle I think that's worth noting here. 
before we pass by this, that God begins with his own house first. And I spoke initially about the idea that there is a a sense of responsibility that we're not to go on sinning, that grace may abound. But there's also a principle that we are to start with ourselves first, I think, here. Jesus said, Why do you see that speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And the principle here is simply to start with self. It's so easy to look out and find everybody else's problems. We're really, really good at this. But the Bible tells us to start with ourselves. That's who we're accountable for. Scripture tells us to care for the widow. How am I doing that? How often do I think about that command? How often am I mindful of widows? What, how, how much of my time every day, every week, every month do I, do I spend giving my attention, time, and resources to caring for widows? Scripture tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. How am I being a cheerful giver? Or is the only time I think about that when the plate passes? Or for me, personally, when I pray and the, and the plate Is that the only time that it comes to my mind? Do I go about living, thinking cheerfully how I can give? Here's one none of us can escape. The Bible tells us, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Do I need to even say anything? You see, it's so easy to be the hypocrite, to point out everyone else's faults, to wag your finger and tell them how wrong they are and how you've got it all figured out. But the message of Scripture is contrary to this attitude. Because what the gospel should produce in our hearts is not the attitude of the Pharisee, thank God I'm not like that one over there, but rather the one who fell on his face and said, have mercy on me for I am a sinner. In our spiritual disciplines, in our judgments, we are to start with our own house first. We're to start with us. That's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think that that principle is not only biblical, but it's worth noting here in that God deals with his house first. Now, after Judah, the message moves to the nations, beginning with Egypt, and then it follows this geographical pattern. And we're not going to go through all these nations because I don't think that's the point of the passage. The point of the passage isn't to figure out why certain nations were included and maybe why certain nations weren't included. The point of the passage is to show that all nations are included. And if you're doubtful of that, just look at the other language that's used. It's all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth. It's this emphatic language. Like, in case you thought all the kingdoms of the world was just hyperbole, that are on the face of this earth is, is added. And, and, and then this is repeated. The message here is that God is going to judge all nations. What's interesting is the order in that he ends with Babylon. Verse 26, Babylon. Now, I haven't looked through all the various translations, the English translations of the Bible, so I don't know how it's written in your Bible, if it's written as Babylon, or if the the Hebrew word may be transliterated there, Shishak. Does anybody have that in their Bible? Okay, so some, some do. Some have the word Shishak. That's what's literally in the Hebrew. Uh, it's not the word Babylon, but most of our Bibles, or, or many of our Bibles, have the word Babylon there because that's what Shishak means. It is a cryptogram. It is a uh, kind of like, remember the cereal box type of decoding? It's, it's that level of cryptogram. It's not, it's not anything super deep. It simply takes the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and switches it for the last. 
the second for the second to the last, and so on. And so what you have here, instead of Beth, Beth, Lamed, which would be the, the consonants for the word Babel or Babylon, you have Sheen, Sheen, Kaf, which would be sounded out as Shishak. And so it was a, a, an athbash, a, a cryptogram, a secret way of writing the word Babylon. Now, some have suggested this was early in Jeremiah's ministry, and at this point he wasn't revealing Babylon yet, and so he wrote it this way. That's possible. I just think it's so elementary that's not really the point because anyone could have figured out what the athbash was. I think that there's something else that's, that's being communicated here, and we can't know for certain. We're not told why he used it, so I don't want to go anywhere that we don't need to go. But I think that if nothing else, there's a sense of ominousness, and I did look that up, that is a word, ominousness, <laughs> Uh, that is that Jeremiah is trying to portray here, that Babylon represents a unique enemy of God. And that this is the beginning of the thread of that theme that we see run through, and we've already seen it in our study of Revelation. Because Babylon's been long gone in history, thousands of years by the time of what we see happening in Revelation looking forward. And yet Babylon serves to represent all that is opposed to God. So this here in seed form is that, is, that, is that thread that God is going to judge all those who are opposed to him. There are eschatological overtones in this passage that, that hint at the final judgment. Although there was a literal coming earthly temporal judgment on Babylon and on, on, on these other nations, Babylon wasn't going to last very long as a superpower there's also a final judgment to come. We know Cyrus came, led the Persians to take over Babylon. He was the one who actually released the Jews to return back to their homeland to rebuild the temple. So Nebuchadnezzar didn't, didn't have a long reign and Babylon didn't have a long, uh, long history. That's the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. But the far-off fulfillment points to the end of time when all the nations are indeed judged. We see this expanding picture of judgment in verses 28 and 29. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. For behold, I begin to work disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished. For I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, declares the Lord of hosts. So he's saying, if I'm going to discipline my people, you think you're going to get away uh, with being punished? No, I'm, I'm going to deal with all the nations. That's his, that's his point here. And this is going to happen over time through various wars and famines and nations overthrowing nations, but it's going to come to its fulfillment at the end of time when God will judge all nations. Now in verse 30, the intensity, uh, and you feel that as you read it, I, I hope you felt it as we read it this morning, there's an intensity that kind of picks up and there's a number of metaphors that, that are used here to describe this coming judgment. And the first is that of a lion, which of course represents God. It says that the Lord will roar from on high. And roar is the linking to the lion. Lion's not listed here, but it's, it, it's clear that's what it represents because the lion's mentioned later as well. The Lord will roar from on high and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold. So again, he starts with his own people, the household of God first, his fold. And there he, he, he roars out not from the temple, from his earthly dominion, but from his heavenly dominion, from on high, against the sheep of his pasture. And then he brings in the metaphor, the image of, uh, the metaphor for judgment of treading grapes. 
uh, he, 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 he describes the people shouting, which is what they would have done. It, it, have anybody ever treaded grapes before? I've only witnessed it, but it's, it's, it is an intense, it, it is not a, a leisurely activity. It is a very physical and intense activity. There's a well-known news clip, bloopers clip from Atlanta news station up at a, a winery just north of Atlanta. Um, I've forgotten the name of uh, Chateau Alain. And the lady treads grapes for like her news segment. She's doing it live and she falls. It's horrible because she screams like she's in incredible pain. And that's what I, all I could think of is that it's, it, it isn't this leisurely activity. It was this, it, it required a lot of physical stamina, but also coordination when you got a lot of people in there. Because when you're stepping on the grapes, they give in different directions. So it's like walking on jello. And so what the people would do is they would shout, like when you row, row a boat with a bunch of people and you want to get in rhythm, it was the shouting or the singing type thing that would keep them in coordination in this act of treading grapes. That's the picture that's painted here. But the point is not the treading of grapes in the sense of shouting and keeping rhythm. The point is what it represents. What are, what are grapes treaded for? <laughs> to make wine. And what has God just given out? the cup of his wine of his wrath. So don't miss that point there, that that's what he is, the picture that he's painting. And then from the nation of Judah, the picture of judgment extends on to the other nations. Verse 31, he is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the wicked he will put to the sword. Notice there, the wicked he will put to the sword. God is going to judge, but those who are found righteous are not going to be put to the sword. We, we do not have to fear the coming judgment uh, if we are in Christ. And then the next metaphor is that of a hurricane, a global hurricane, something we cannot even imagine. Uh, I always think of, of how uh, you know, these massive hurricanes come, and then they, they put the satellite on, and it's this beast, and they tell you how wide and miles and all this, and then you look, and it's like it just covers a little bit, right? You know, it's not, this is a, a hurricane that expands over the whole world. That's the picture that's being painted, stirring from the farthest parts of the earth, verse 32. And the, the point of this is that no one will escape. That, that's, that's the image that's being painted. It's not a literal hurricane that's going to come that God's going to use. At least I don't think that argument could be made here. But rather, this is an image, a metaphor, describing that no one will escape his judgment. And then the final paragraph is the picture of just humiliation. Slaughter and dispersion have come, verse 34 says. The, the final image is that of the sheep being killed along with their shepherds, the shepherds who should have protected them. No refuge will remain, verse 35 says. And then we see who is responsible for the siege. The Lord is laying waste their pasture, verse 36. He is the one who comes as the judge. And then in the final verse of the chapter, we see, here's where the lion is mentioned specifically, that the lion has left its lair because of the anger of the Lord. The lion is the Lord. And his departure here is not, he's not leaving his lair to go out on the hunt. The hunt has already occurred. This is after his judgment. He's leaving because the land has been laid to waste, it says. In other words, the glory of the Lord has departed. That's the picture that's being painted here in the end. And so the emphasis then on this part of Jeremiah's message is the call to repent. It's the message Jeremiah has been delivering from the very beginning. It's a consistent message that he brings not only to Judah, but now to the nations. Turn back. Turn back and walk in the way. And while the, the, the prophet's main audience has been Judah, we see now that it, it is every nation of the world. Turn back from your wickedness. Seek the mercy of the God of the universe. 
In many ways, redemptive history tells this story again and again. If you go through the cycles of the you know, Exodus and the judges and the, you know, the kingdom and, and then the division and we, this part and so forth, we see this kind of just continuing pattern where God calls his people back again and again and again. But what we begin to see as redemptive history unfolds and what we're told from Scripture that God has been doing all along is not some kind of behavior modification. That's what every other religion of the world teaches, a God that demands you conform to to his or her requirements. But what we see here is a God who gives his people a new heart. He takes out their heart of stone and gives them the heart of flesh. And yes, I'm peeking ahead a little bit to Jeremiah uh, 31 through 33. We're going to get there. But that, that's the message that's beginning is that God is the one who has been working all along. This is not, again, behavior modification, but we are given a new heart, a new affection, a new life. He has put on flesh to die so that this might happen. A free gift to pay a price that you and I could never afford. And the promise is not just for eternity or eternal life, but the promise is for eternal life and eternal bliss. Uh, It's Garden of Eden 2.0, right? It's, it's, It's the next level. It's the fact that there will be no thorns and no tears, an unending feast, blessings and pleasures at His right hand forever. Everything sad will become untrue. It's beyond our imagination because we bring into our framework even of eternity, will I grieve this? Will I be sad about this? There will be no more tears. However He works it, whatever He does, however He accomplishes it, you know my answer when you ask what heaven's going to be like, better than you can imagine, right? That's, that's the answer. It's better than we can even comprehend. And that is what is true for us. Now all of us recognize what perfect justice is in our minds. All right? Perfect justice is the right thing done for everyone in all ways and at all times. And yet, who of us has ever witnessed perfect justice? Not in this life. Not in this life because we live in a fallen world. And even our best attempts at perfect justice are fouled by our motives and our sinful hearts and our, our, our mixed desires. Yes, we are to fight for justice, but we have to recognize that we will always fall short in this life. And yet a day is coming when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We fight for that now, but we know it only in bits and pieces. We know it only in tastes. But when Christ returns, He will bring to completion perfect justice. So the question for us that remains then is, how can we as sinners be justified? And the answer is described in Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. He is our only propitiation for our sin. No other payment will satisfy. And so if you have never received by faith that gift of salvation, today is the day to look to Christ and to trust Him. The price has to be paid. If you do not look to Christ, there is no one else. You can't pay it yourself. If you have believed, then hear this. 
you are justified. You have been made right. Not in part, but the whole of your sin has been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. You don't have to look to your good works or your good intentions, your best efforts, but simply to keep your eyes fixed on Christ who did this for you. This was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, he doesn't tolerate or overlook our sins, but remains perfectly just by laying upon Christ the sins of us all. So if you are trusting him alone, know that your sins are forgiven. Know that you are cleansed. Know that you are justified. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Let's pray. Lord, help us to comprehend what we have been saved from. Help us to understand what we are free from. Help us to know the forgiveness of sins. I do pray that if there's anyone here that that has never come to that place, that you would draw them to yourself today. And I pray also for those who, who do trust you, Lord, that they would know that they are justified, that their sins are forgiven, that they are cleansed and made holy because of what Christ has done. Lord, this, it's hard to believe. We, we have a hard time with this because we look at the, at the record. We keep looking backward. We know we're guilty. Would you help us to believe and know the truth of the gospel? That our sins have been removed. That we have been cleansed and made right. Would you strengthen us in this, not just for our own sense of peace internally, but that we might live unto you, that we might walk in those good works which you ordained in the past for us to walk in, that we may not waste our life, our breath, the moments that you've given us, but that we might live unto you in all areas of life at all times, be mindfully, uh, 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 mindfully aware of your presence and call to faith in all areas. Lord, we're so easily distracted. We think of other things, our minds wander. Would you help us to continually fix our eyes on Jesus, knowing that he has gone before us to do what we could not do for ourselves. Strengthen our faith today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.